I feel like the mood is off when we record at different times and days than our normal schedule. The like, sun's out. We can't record. Well, not even that. I'm just like more chipper and happy because <laughs> I haven't gone through a full work day. So. It's not like 8 p.m. <laughs> 8 p.m. I haven't gone through a full long work day where I hate everybody. <laughs> so, so I'm going to be much more generous this chapter reading. <laughs> everybody will be like, who is that? That's not Emma. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fits Happy. I'm Emma. And I'm Luke. And we are coming back to you with chapter 22, Plots and Perils. So we're starting off in Kenneth's point of view. I believe the last time we saw Kenneth, he was dodging an assassination attempt and murdering like seven people. Yes. <laughs> so he is now a week or so away, maybe even a month. Really hard to tell, but it's time been has some passed. Time. He's back on his ship. Yes. And so is Edda. <laughs> At this point, we come in to the chapter with Kenneth's wizard wood charm talking to him. And the way that they're talking makes it seem like this is almost a regular occurrence now. I know previous to this, Kenneth always seems surprised when the charm talks to him and the charm doesn't seem to hold conversations. They're more like little quips that are getting longer in conversation terms, I guess. But here we have an actual conversation between the two and Kenneth isn't very surprised. He's not in awe. He's more just annoyed and wants the charm to shut up. And they're discussing what has previously happened. And in Kenneth's thought, he's going over those memories of them chasing another live ship who Looked like it was very slow. It was very old. They got up close to see the sailors. They were throwing, you know, fireballs at it and the sails started to burn, but the sails immediately dropped to the ground so the crew could stamp them out. And all the while, the live ship gained on them and fled and eventually they lost them. So we have another example of live ships being able to outrun any dead wood ships easily with right. even out with without even the full sails of the live ships. So it's uh, Kenneth being extremely frustrated and the charm being like, oh, it didn't work out for Captain Kenneth, the Pirate King, huh? Right. I think what's really interesting about this is there is so much description on the fact that it was an old style. It's a fat bellied merchant ship like it's going super super slow it didn't even see them until they were close enough to be able to hear the figurehead shouting orders like this was something that Kenneth thought he had in the bag and it still outran them so even with the advantages that they had the live ship was able to get away Kenneth talks about he himself went up to the crow's nest to see the ship to try to give better orders because he was so frustrated with his crew's lack of action. And even that wasn't enough. By the time they were able to round the curve of the ship, it was gone. It had disappeared from view. Yeah, around a curve of an island. Yeah. Kind of just vanished. So yeah, he's sitting there very frustrated. And the charm pipes up saying, I suppose this means you owe Sorcor another slaver, doesn't it? The charm observed affably. I wonder, if I cut you from my wrist and threw you overboard, would you float? 
Let's find out, the small face suggested agreeably. Kenneth sighed. The only reason I continue to tolerate you is because you cost me so much in the first place. The twin countenance pursed his lips at him. I wonder if you shall say that of the whore also in days to come. Kenneth clenched his eyes shut. Cannot you be silent and leave me alone for even a moment? A soft step and a whisper of brushing fabric on the deck behind him. Did you speak to me? Etta asked. So Etta comes up behind him while he was alone. Obviously the crew has been ignoring or at least avoiding Kenneth for a while. Right. Not speaking of anything because he was in a huge rage at losing that live ship. But Etta, Etta approaches and wants to keep him company and talk to him a little bit, but is still aware that this is Kenneth, is aware of his idiosyncrasies, uh, idiosyncratic behaviors. Right. She <laughs> and does. doesn't touch him at all, you know, doesn't right. get comfortable around him. <laughs> it's really interesting because it talks about how, about how even though she has a specific place on ship, she doesn't try to use that to her advantage, which I think is something that, Kenneth likes about her is that she knows her place, quote unquote, but it's kind of more sad for a reader to see because it's like, she, this is supposed to be some sort of relationship and she won't even touch him because she's afraid. Well, I don't know if she's afraid, but I think she knows that he doesn't like the intimate right. closeness of somebody else. So fair I think enough. she's aware of who he is and That's what he fair. wants. Yeah, so she's there, and she's not there for no reason or even just to keep him company. The whole purpose of her coming is because she kind of has an idea about how to get a live ship, and she has to carefully broach this subject because she seems like a pretty intelligent woman and knows that you can't just tell a man your ideas if it's your idea. You kind of have to make them feel like they've earned it. (laughs) But even before... She broaches that subject. We have, uh, I just want to touch on this a little bit because it is expanded on later in this chapter. We have the charm echoing kind of what Kenneth is thinking, but says something out loud where Etta can hear and Etta confuses that voice for Kenneth's voice. So she approaches and he kind of is saying she smiled at him radiantly, luminously, lovely, breathed a small voice at his wrist. And Kenneth had to concur. But Etta takes that as Kenneth saying it, and she lowers her eyes and looked aside from him as if momentarily shy or confused. So this is expanded on later on, and everyone who has read these books, as I hope all of you guys have, knows the charm does talk to Etta and kind of woos her to Kenneth's side to stay with Kenneth. Right. And this is the first kind of look into that. I know what happened during that ambush scene where people mistook the charm for what Kenneth was saying, but this is the first time where the charm kind of addresses Etta directly. Yeah. What I think is really interesting about the charm specifically is it, it raises a lot of questions to me personally. One of them being, does this mean that the charm sounds identical to Kenneth? I think so, yeah. It must at least be close, close enough to where people think that is him. 
I think it, yeah, I think it is identical. Maybe not in tone because right. <laughs> yeah, it's think... a little bit more cold and the, right. <laughs> the charm is described as saying something agreeably or something affably. Right. So that's like a really fun, a really interesting thing to think about because then I wonder like, this is a little tangent, but I wonder if all the live ships sound like one of the people who died on their ship. I don't think they so. Absorbed, because they're carved differently. They carve, they're carved like individual people. So maybe they sound, you know, close to something, but they're made up of a bunch of things. The charm is carved exactly like Kenneth and has only been with Kenneth. So I can only assume that that's the only influence and that's what the charm was looked like. So it's only absorbing Kenneth's memories and thoughts. Interesting. I don't know. That's my, my assumption anyways, because... Efren never talks about, oh, this is what I remember my great-grandma sounding like, or this is... Well, Efren well, is yeah. dead. Efren so. is dead and never heard Vivacia <laughs> talk. Fair. But that's what I'm saying. It's like the people who they would sound like would be dead, and there wouldn't necessarily be somebody alive that remembers the original founder's voice, right? Althea, she saw the memories of... I of guess. her grandma, great-great-grandma talking or whatever it was, and has heard Althea talking and never mentions that's fair the similarities there good point good point either way not super important but the other question that this raises for me is does the charm have feelings for etta or is it super calculated knowing that kenneth needs etta by his side to do well like is this feelings or is it a calculation I don't know. This kind of comes down to a lot of our discussion about the charm, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it all of Kenneth's memories? Is it just the good parts with with how Kenneth would be without the forging? You know, like, right? what is this? Obviously, Kenneth thinks that Etta is lovely and does have some feelings for her. He fully can't recognize that in his own mind, either out of you know, his narcissistic need (laughs) or his forging itself or something. But he does echo some of the thoughts that the term speaks out loud. So is it just no filter like the charm said, like, I'm exactly what you are, but I don't block myself from saying anything or inhibit my brain from thinking anything? Or is it its own thinking thing? It's I don't know. It just kind of comes down to that philosophical question that we've talked about a little bit before. Because I don't know. <laughs> right. No, I definitely, I think especially with this chapter, I had a lot of, a lot more questions of like, what is this? Like, like I feel like very much Wintro-esque and then I'm like, is this of Saw? Like, <laughs> it doesn't feel of Saw if it has feelings. <laughs> if, if we take it to its full culmination of the thought of what the charm said it was basically i am all of you except i don't have those blocks i don't have those inhibitions or whatever i can only assume that it is deliberately keeping at a by kenneth's side fair and yes maybe there are there are some attractions there and kenneth obviously feels those so the charm without those inhibitions those blocks would also feel those and want to sing praises to etta it's also with the ulterior, mo- ulterior motives that Kenneth would have. There. So I think it's kind of a, a double-edged sword there where, yeah, you are lovely and beautiful and I do like you a lot, but also you're really helpful. Fair. Yeah, th- I guess that's a good point. And 
I mean, to be fair, if the if we're assuming that the wizard would, like we said, we're taking him at face value. Knock on wood. <laughs> um, <laughs> on wood. <laughs> um, <laughs> pun intended. We're taking him at face value, and he says he's all of Kenneth without the barriers or whatever. Maybe the thing that he doesn't have of Kenneth's is this ultimate distrust of people. Like I think one of Kenneth's things is that he is willing to use anyone and everyone. However, he can't ever trust that the people he used won't do the same back. There's no sense of like, I could build their loyalty. There's just this like, okay, I use them and I don't want them to hurt me. So I'm going to get rid of them. And I think that maybe his counterpoint, not having experienced the traumas that Kenneth has can see the value of cultivating a following where you don't just get rid of everybody as soon as they're not useful. You just keep them useful by making them super into serving you. True. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. But anyway, so this is a little bit of the start of the romance between the three of them. And, and Edda does look beautiful. She does. And it talks a little bit about how the last time we saw her, she came to the ship nude. Um, So she needed something to wear and the people or the person who brought her couldn't bear to see her in the rough clothing of a sea person. Like the pirate's clothing were not really. Also, Kenneth did say, you know, make sure she is clothed and provided for everything that she needs. Right. Exactly. And so there's like this little awkwardness. And so they end up giving her two bolts of fabric of really nice fabric from their pirating uh, run from the last time. And she has decided to use her time aboard the ship making clothes for herself. And Kenneth says that's good in two ways. One, she's not making dresses, which is surprising, but like excellent. Great. Good job for her. It's, you know, trousers and and like a jacket, but it's all like very fashionable, very nice because it's beautiful fabric. And then two, it kept her out of the way for a a few weeks. Right. It keeps her occupied, which Kenneth can't imagine a woman being on board and not being in the way. So it's good for him that she is occupied. But he does in his mind, make sure to say not that he was resigned to her living aboard the ship. He had simply not yet found a good place to stash her. It was convenient to him that she was an adaptable sort. Not once had she complained since he had brought her aboard, unless one counted the second day when she stormed the galley and upbraided the cook for oversalting the stew he had sent to Kenneth's table. As often as not, she now oversaw the preparation of their cabin-served meals, and perhaps the food had improved as a result of that. But she was still a whore, he reminded himself. And then goes into a description of, like, despite, you know, her short hair that glistened. and Despite <laughs> how beautiful she is and how many feelings she stirs up inside me, she is her profession, and I won't see past that. Yep. And, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that's a defense mechanism I think like we just said he has trauma and there is that wall that he has to build between people I don't think he could ever trust anyone fully and so the fact that he is having what seems to be romantic feelings for Etta is probably really unsettling for him because he doesn't like letting people in he blames the feelings blossoming on having a woman too close to him for too long right that that's why it's better just be at sea so you don't have to be around women all the time. It's bad for a man. 
And I, I just find it really interesting how hard he is trying to push away this idea that she could be a companion for him and she has to stick to her role in his mind. And so we finally get to the topic that you had brought up earlier where she wants to talk of that live ship. Now, I, I do kind of want to talk about this little scene. It's not important. I just think it's really funny how she says, I've been thinking about the live ship that eluded you today. And he says, don't speak to me of that. I won't, she promised him gently. But after a moment, she broke her word as women always did. The swiftness of a willing live ship is legendary, she said quietly. It's just <laughs> like, yes, super cynical, stereotyping and generalizing a whole gender. However, she immediately does break her word. <laughs> well, no, because she said she wouldn't talk about that live ship. So she's talking about live ships in general now, not ah, the live yes. ship that went away. So she. Oh, what a woman thing to say, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crafty like that. Uh, <laughs> I think that was just funny. So, no, it is. so she does broach that topic now and wants to speak on that experience, not specifically, but for the future. Right. I do want to ask, though, what experience with women does Kenneth have to say all women break their promise to not talk about things? Maybe. I don't know. I, his mom? Maybe his mom. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe he's had other whores before Etta, right? Like right, the, yeah. That's a distinct possibility. He's in his 30s. Etta's is probably in her 20s. Like, there might have like, someone else. Well, we decide maybe early 40s, I think. Like 42 or something like that. Yeah. So we think he's somewhere in his early 40s, late 30s. Yeah. Etta is not. <laughs> so there could have been someone before her. But we're not really sure. But I just find it very interesting that, like, he's like, oh, what a typical woman thing. And I'm like... A woman thing? How many women have you known? <laughs> no offense, Kenneth. Like, <laughs> actually, you know what? Full offense. I don't like Kenneth. But she says, I wonder if the very willingness of the ship to flee swiftly might not be somehow turned against it. Kenneth, of course, is, you know, I fail to see how he's sneering and things like that. She, <laughs> again, we have a little paragraph of him being fixed on her beauty here saying she licked her lips before she spoke, and for just an instant, his whole attention was caught by that tiny movement of a wet pink tongue tip. An irrational surge of desire flamed up in him. Damn her, this constant exposure to a woman was not good for a man. Yeah, he's definitely hating this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also you know, loving it. Yeah, in, in his own way. But I think it's really interesting because Etta notices and kind of smiles a little, which... He gets frustrated by it, but I think it's interesting because Etta does know her ability as a woman to get men's attention. And I think it's kind of cool to see her use that to push her own ideas for something and like have it seen as like she's kind of really masterful in talking to Kenneth and getting him to listen to her ideas. Mm -hmm. And she continues on that idea saying a rabbit kills itself when it runs headlong into the snare. If one knew the planned course of a live ship, and if one had more than one pirate vessel at one's disposal, why then a single ship could give chase and urge the live ship to run in headlong into an ambush. I am told that it be can be quite difficult to stop a ship, even if the danger ahead is seen, and it seems to me there are many narrow channels in these waters. Kenneth responds, I suppose it might be done, though it seems to me that there are a great many ifs involves. It would require precisely the right circumstances. She agrees, yes, it would. And he is 
in a better mood and then gives into his desires and uh, starts kissing her and says, never presume to tell me my business. I well know how to get what I want. I need no woman to advise me. Her eyes were full of the night. You know very well, she agreed with him huskily. I think this is really interesting because what Etta has done, has proposed. she has proposed a plan that is actually really intelligent. And kind of recognizes that. Yeah, too. but I think what's the smartest about it is that she's left a lot of ifs for Kenneth to puzzle out on his own. She's not telling him step by step what to do. She's not giving him exact details. She's saying this idea seems like it could potentially work if he could figure it out and then letting Kenneth come to the conclusion and feel like it's his own idea. And again, I feel like that's like really tactfully done on her end and something that she's probably developed as a woman who has had to work in sex work and trying to get men to do what she wants without being able to ask them to do what she wants. Yeah. And I think that's really cool to see her use that here. And I also think it's really interesting to have Kenneth talk about how he's giving into his desires right now. There's a line about how he doesn't have to worry about her being with other men now so he can kiss her as he pleases with no fear. And so he does. And I find that really interesting that there is also this like thing going on with Kenneth where he's trying to justify of like, this is her job. This is her role to please me. And that's how I'm going to get out of the situation where she has a little bit of power and where I'm feeling attraction to her. I'm going to use that as like, of course, I'm feeling attraction to her. That's her job. And so there is, I don't know, like a lot going on underneath the surface, I think. Yeah, for sure. Sure. And next we have Paragon. This chapter jumps around quite a bit from perspective to perspective. Right. So we get a Paragon point of view where it is night. I believe it is night. Because it says uh, the evening birds had ceased their calls hour ago. So it was full dark of night. Paragon knows that by the sounds. And he hears a couple voices, one of which is Mingsley. He recognizes walking down towards the ship. Perhaps they were coming to set fire to him. He had taunted Mingsley the last time he was here. Perhaps the man would fling the lantern at him. The glass would break and flaming oil would splash over him. He'd die here, screaming and helpless, a slow death by fire. And of course it's Paragon, so to me it reads a little wistful, (laughs) a little hoping. Yeah, there's I also think a little bit of fear there because oh, we course, know yeah. Paragon hates being alone. And so sure he'd be doing what he was told to by Kenneth, which is die. However, it would be in the worst way possible. <laughs> <laughs> we learn that the second voice is Chalcedian, and Mingsley is once again here trying to convince a buyer, saying, Hey, go in with a scheme with me. We're going to make a ton of money. Right. What's really interesting about this is as they're approaching, the first thing that Paragon can hear and recognizes Mingsley is we're almost there. And then the Chalcedian is like, you said that three times and I've already tripped. I'm pretty sure I'm bleeding. And it's just so whiny. And I love that because I feel like everything we get from Chalcedians, like what we hear about Chalcedians is that they're so macho and tough and like really believe in gender roles and men have to be a certain way. And so like the first Chalcedian that's full blood Chalcedian that we hear from, he's whining about having a scraped knee, which I think is amazing. (laughs) Again, like there is nothing wrong with men being upset about being hurt, but like the fact that the man in question is a Chalcedian who we've heard values a certain set, I think makes it just a little bit more humorous. 
So the Chalcedian says, in this fog, we won't be able to see a thing. Why couldn't we come by day? Did Mingsley hesitate in his reply? There has been some bad feeling about town. The old traders don't like the idea of anyone, not an old trader, buying a live ship. If they knew you were interested, well, I've had a few not-so-subtle warnings to stay away from here. When I ask why, I get lies and excuses. They tell me no one but a Bingtown trader can own a live ship. You ask why, you'll get more lies. Goes against all their traditions, is what they'd like you to believe. But actually, there's a great deal more to it than that. More than I ever suspected when I first started negotiating for this. Ah, here we are. Even damaged, you can see how magnificent he once was. So we have Mingsley hinting at something, some grand reveal here. And he presents Paragon to this Chalcedian buyer. And the Chalcedian's like, magnificent? You mean ugly? It kind of goes the whole, you know, negotiation route. And Paragon's like, magnificent? I thought ugly was the word you applied to me last time, Mingsley. Paragon speaks out. And of course, they both gasp because like, oh my gosh, a live ship's talking. I think what's really interesting about Mingsley's explanation as to why they have to come at night is that he's presuming that the old traders are lying to him. And I guess in some ways they are, but it's so interesting to me that he is assuming that it's all lies. There's no way that they could be telling the truth when in reality, the reason that they're lying is because the truth feels unfeasible. Like there is a really big price to pay that isn't just money to own a live ship and to go down the Rainwild route. Like there is more to it than that. And I think him only seeing it as they're trying to hide their greed is a little unfortunate. And I guess that's kind of what happens when you keep secrets that are big. And that just so people who haven't read this book for a while, the big reveal is that they have these live ships so they can trade down the Rainwild River. Mingsley thinks it's some tribe or whatever that they're trading with to get a bunch of riches. Because before then, nobody really knew where all these wild artifacts were coming from. And Mingsley thinks he's figured out the big secret. So he's trying to convince this Chalcedian buyer to Firth, as we learn his name is, to get the live ship so they can also get a you know, claim of those riches. Right. And going to what you said, yeah, these secrets. The Bingtown traders, yes, are protecting their own way of life. But they're also protecting the live ship traders or the Rainwild Traders' way of life and their secrets, and also protecting the third parties who don't know that they probably will die if they go up there. Right. And if it's not being killed by the Rainwild Traders, it will be by some disease that they encounter. Because ultimately, Efren Vestrit was right that it is dangerous, and you never know what you're bringing back with you when you go up the river. We don't know that the blood plague came from them. No, because it seems the blood plague also happened in other places it wasn't just here there were multiple blood plagues actually yeah so either way though i think it's safe to say that there are things that happen when you trade down the river like Mm -hmm. women bearing children that aren't children so not really something that you would want to wish on your family members (laughs) if you knew about that i'm sure so first this chalcedian is very overawed and overwhelmed says that I still don't know why we're out here at night. Oh, I know a part of it. You want my financial backing. But just why should I help you raise three times what a ship this size would cost us for a beached derelict with a chopped up figurehead, even if it can talk? And Mingsley 
says because it's made of wizard wood. And then he goes through this whole explanation of like leading Firth to the conclusion of like, why is it made of wizard wood? It's so expensive. Why make such a big thing out of this? And Firth is like, everyone knows why they come to life and they're easier to sail. And Mingsley has to explain like, yeah, sure. But knowing that about wizard wood, would you rush to commit your family's fortunes for three or four generations just to possess a ship like this? And Firth is like, no, but everyone knows the traders here are crazy. So this widely held belief of like, why was never delved into, which I find kind of hard to believe as a plot point in this book. Right. Like no one else before really thought about it. But I guess if there's such a huge stigma of settling on the cursed shore of these people being absolutely insane to be here, I, I guess it could hold some weight. But I just in my mind, it's like he's the first person. Mingsley is the first person <laughs> to figure this out. Well, I wonder, too. I mean, it doesn't seem like there were a ton of people that were coming to this area that like had plans to leave. Right. Like, I think that the new traders do. The new traders don't bring their families here. They're just here to make riches. And I think that that is something that's really new. So people who have lived here kind of probably have questioned it and figured it out in some way or another. But it's also their home that they're planning on staying on forever. So what's the point of getting underneath the skin of the most powerful people in town if you could just keep that knowledge to yourself and go on about your day? Right, yeah. So I wonder if it's just this new onslaught of people who, number one, do not respect traditions, and number two, are kind of just greedy, power-hungry people here to make a quick buck, that that's why people are starting to openly question and now figure out kind of the the secret quote unquote behind why live trip traders are so wealthy. Right. Yeah. And that's what they go into a little bit here too, where Paragon is interrupting say like, Oh yeah. And if you fell and there was barnacles there, you're likely poisoned. It's going to be really rough. So why should I be quiet? And aren't you the one that's nervous to come here tinkering with what doesn't concern you talking about what you can never possess. And Mingsley interrupts saying, I know why you won't talk about that. You don't want him to know, do you? The precious secret of Wizardwood. You don't want that shared, do you? Because then the whole stack of blocks comes tumbling down for the Bingtown traders. And so he continues to like lead Firth down this path. Like, why are they so wealthy? Why are they the ones who can only go up the Rainwild River? And Paragon keeps interrupting, saying like, he's getting you deeper than you can imagine. Some secrets aren't worth sharing. Some secrets have prices higher than you'll want to pay. And Mingsley continues saying, you know, these rivers will, you know, melt any boat that goes up them. But the secret is that they won't with a live ship. Unless you have a live ship hulled with wizard wood impervious to the hot white water of the river, unless you have a live ship who knows from the moment it is quickened the one channel up the river. That is the true source of Bingtown Monopoly on the trade. You have to have a live ship to get in the game, and I'm offering you the chance to get one. So that is also the big thing. Live ships know the way up the river because that is the way the serpents went to get up the river. Right. And they can feel like since the land probably has changed due to the cataclysm, they can also feel the currents. They can steer you correctly. So they, they know the way. Right. So not even is it just something that they're knowing by instinct. It's also something that has been passed down for generations. And they're actually alive, so mm-hmm. they can steer. It doesn't matter if the captain knows nothing. 
the boat does. Yeah. And, and Paragon here is interrupting and I think kind of making things worse. Right. Uh, but he's desperately saying like, he's lying to you. He's lying to you. You know, um, you know, I, even if you owned me, I wouldn't sail for you. I'll, I'll kill you. Like I killed the other ones. Just ask about me, blah, blah, blah. Go ahead and ask. They'll tell you, they'll tell you I'll kill you. And Mingsley says he can be forced or removed. The hull is what mo- is most important. A good riverman could sound us out a channel. Think what we could do with a wizardwood ship. There's some tribe up there that the Bingtown traders traffic with. One trip would be all it would take. Earth, we could pay we could pay them double what the old traders pay them and still make a profit. This is our chance to get in on a trade that's been closed to outsiders since Bintown was founded. I've got the contacts. The owners are listening for the right cash offer. All I need is the backing. And you've got that. And Paragon again, he's lying to you, he's going to get you killed and worse, much worse. There are worse things than dying, you Chalcedian scum, but only a Bingtown trader would know that. Only a Bingtown trader could tell you that. And Firth says, I think I'm interested, but there are better places to discuss this. And they walk off while Paragon is saying like, no, 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 I won't do this. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. I'll kill you. I will kill you. And Mingsley responds as they're walking away to Firth's question. You heard him. He's mad. He completely insane. No one listens to him. No one even comes out here. Even if he had someone to tell, they'd never believe him. That's the beauty of this, my friend. It's so far outside of anyone else's imagining. That ship has rested there for years, years, and no one ever thought of this before. And Paragon is in denial. He's trying to yell like, no, no, this is not going to happen. But it sinks into him that that had always been the problem. No one ever listened to him. They'd ignore everything he told them. They'd take him out and he'd have to kill them all again. So, yeah, that's kind of sad. Yes, Um, it's This chapter, or this section of the chapter really shows Paragon's devolution, I guess, to the strong man version of Paragon to the boy version of Paragon. He becomes more and more tantrum-like. He is more despondent, more threatening to kill. That feels like the more childish side of him because we know there's kind of two sides. Dangerous, threatening, and that that trauma from when he was young kind of comes out and he reverts to that form. Right. And it's really, really sad that Paragon has to do this alone. Yeah. There's nothing for him to do. And Mingsley is right. Even if he was in the wharf with other people, nobody would believe him. And I find it really interesting that he says nobody ever believes him and he'd have to take them out and he would have to kill them all again. And that makes me wonder what makes him feel like he has to kill the people that's on his ship. I don't know. Because I feel like we get a little bit of this later, but I don't remember it. Because I think he kind of goes insane from serpents talking to him, but that was after he capsizes one time without doing that, like during a storm or something. The first time when he livened, or when he quickened, I guess. Yes. And then he tries to capsize and drown himself, and the serpents, like, drive him crazy, and he floats back to Bingtown. And I think that's where he is now, unless that was right before the last people took him out. I think... Oh, yeah, the last people took him out, and then Igret takes him over and kills them, and that's, you know, Kenneth is the son of the last people who took him out. And then he floats back eventually to Bangtown as well. So 
maybe it's because Igrid's treasure is up the Rainwild River. Maybe it's because, I don't know. It just feels like this isn't the first time he's told somebody that if they get on his ship, he has to kill them. Right. And that makes me wonder why. Maybe it's because he's forced to confront, like to grow up and confront memories that Mm. he's deliberately hidden. I don't know. Maybe it's because serpents are out there and it's making them dredge up the dragon memories. I was wondering if maybe it's partially because he has the two dragons warring inside and one of them wants to kill humans for what they've done. Possibly. And so he's like, listen, the Dr. High or Dr. Heckle, wait, Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde, Dr. Hyde here. Heckle and Jide. <laughs> Heckle and Jide. Dr. Hyde here. Um, I cannot help whenever Jekyll comes out and wants to kill you. So don't get on me because sometimes he takes over. Just a warning. Like it will happen. I, I can't control it. People are like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then Jekyll comes out and is like, yeah, I'm going to kill you. And people are like, what? <laughs> is it Dr. Hyde? No, it's Dr. Jekyll and Hyde, right? Oh, I guess Hyde would be the one because Hyde, yeah. like you hide. Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't know. I don't think I've actually ever read the story. I just like kind of vaguely know. I just think of the Hulk every time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, New theory, uh, tinfoil hat theory. The Hulk is the reimagination of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't think that's the tinfoil hat theory. I think that's where inspiration comes from. You never know. You know what? We're not comic book people. We don't know. (laughs) True. Either way, unimportant. (laughs) Very off the trail. So we have a, yeah, we have a Chalcedian who is possibly convinced now and the the deal set in motion Mingsley finally found a backer potentially because he figured out the secret that yeah wizard wood ship can go up the rainwild river and you can get extremely rich by doing that because all the bingtown trader families are rich from doing that they're the only ones who can do that so that's where the riches come from so we have a potential sale for paragon in the mix here with Althea and Brashen on the way back to, I think to Candletown technically is where this ship is going, but they eventually make their way back to Bingtown and that kind of sets up that story. Yeah. Just quick question for you. What do the Rainwild traders need with money? If Pay they off don't, their live ship. <laughs> no, I mean like, no, the people in the Rainwilds. Oh, they, the Rainwilds. Yeah. The Rainwild traders, they can't interact with normal people. So why would they need money? Um, they buy they buy goods from the live ship traders. They have to trade something, you know. I suppose, but so do you think that they're trading for money whenever they trade the goods, or are they trading for like supplies? I mean, they get money through from as we see payments from Ronica for like the debts, right? Things like that. They probably trade money for goods. I don't know. It's probably like a money exchange, I would guess. I guess the tar man. Maybe he, like, the captain of the tar man, like, Left gets ring. goods. Yeah, gets goods and sells them to people. Because he doesn't seem like somebody who's selling the, like, hidden go- or the, like, yeah actually important goods. Because they can't really grow much food besides what's native up there, right? Right. So, and what is up native up there? We don't know if it's good to eat. <laughs> there are fruits that are there good are to eat. There are fruits and stuff. Yeah, like Tamara is like a, a tr- like a picker, right? Yeah. But it's like super dangerous because yeah. you have to climb. So 
Yeah, they obviously trade for livable goods from Bingtown and they have to buy stuff there. They probably, they hire, they pay the families as miners. So like the big families have to pay the workers. It's obviously a rich society. Yeah. Because they have a lot of money. At least the top families have a lot of money. True. But it's probably also, it's also definitely a, a hard life. So that money... It's probably expensive. Like it, the goods right. are probably expensive that they yeah. buy. True. That's true. It's, I don't know. It's really interesting though, to think about how Mingsley has talked about how they're going to offer double the amount of money, which made me think about like, what do they need money for? But also how rich do these people have to be that they can pay for a ship three times its cost and offer to buy things for double the amount that the other people are buying? Like, Slaves. Yeah, I guess. Slave trade. I guess this is like Southern America before slave trade was outlawed. Yeah. It's just like insane amount of wealth. Mm-hmm. I guess if you don't have to pay anybody, <laughs> if you get literally all your labor for free, you probably do make a lot of money. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good point. But no, that is kind of crazy to think about how rich they have to be to be able to do that. Especially when we're juxtapositioning that with the vestrits who mm-hmm. are struggling <laughs> to get by. And not really like struggling because it's poorly run or anything either. No. They're making the same amount of money as they have, even with the down years because of the war in the six duchies. Right. Slave labor is just undercutting everything. So yep. yeah. Ridiculously rich for them. So speaking of Althea and Brashen, who are hopefully making their way back to Paragon and hopefully can rescue him from, from this deal in time and take him out sailing. Right. (laughs) They are under attack from a serpent who has been bothering the ship, has been nudging the ship up and down. We know this serpent is looking for food. It's like bumping the ship and snatching people from the deck that are falling or about to fall. Right. And we know that the area that they are in is very cold. Althea is in the crow's nest and she talks about how there's ice underneath her feet. So it's very cold. Her fingers are numb. She's freezing cold, but they've had to do this sort of night watch. It is nighttime where they watch out for the serpent who's been trying to attack them. And it's huge. It's a really big serpent. Mm Mm-hmm. And Althea kind of speaks on a little bit of what's happened in the intervening time that we've missed with her. Fever passed and Reller made coarse jokes and had a, or like rough jokes and, and was kind of clumsy pulling out the stitches in her head when they were like itching really bad. But she says that's way better than the guarded tenderness that is in Brashen's eyes whenever she's near now. So there's a certain uncomfortableness between them, at least on Althea's part. Right. She hates that he's thinking of her in that way. And she hates that she is in turn thinking of him more than she should. Yes, exactly. But right now they are in the middle of a very dangerous attack that has been going on for too long. Too many days and nights of sudden random attacks followed by an anxious hours of ominous cessation. Sometimes the serpents crested and writhed alongside the ship, always just out of reach of a bowshot. Sometimes there were a half dozen hides scintillating in the winter sun, reflecting blue and scarlet and gold and green. And sometimes, like tonight, there would be but one monstrous creature coming to mock them by effortlessly toying with their lives. Sighting serpents to, serpents was nothing new to Althea once they had been as rare, so rare as to be legendary. 
Now they infested certain areas on the outside and followed slave ships through the inside passage. She'd seen a few on her time aboard the Vivacia, but always at a distance and never threatening. This proximity to their savagery made them see new, seem new creatures. So they've been followed and attacked by multiple different serpents and maybe tangles of serpents all the while they've been sailing back. Right. Like you said, it's been very cold. It is winter right now. They're on the outside passage um, leaving, what was it, Nook? I believe yeah, was the I last town. So. so they're still sailing back to the calmer waters out uh, from the barrens and their their hunting trip. And these serpents are on the move. They're looking for food. There's no slavers out here. And this right. is the only thing really moving around. <laughs> right. And I think what's really interesting is it seems to be that the path they're taking, she says they're on the outside, which means they're going around the pirate isles. Yes. Because so, that's where the barrens was. It was across yes, the outside. So they had to, they're not chancing going near pirates with their bounty. They are going to be safe and take the outside passage, which does mean that they are more susceptible to serpent attacks. But I think what's the most interesting to me is that Althea talks about how the amount of serpents has been growing. And that's interesting because we know serpents are the children, I guess, the babies of dragons. And there haven't been dragons for centuries. Right. So where is this growth of number coming from? They've always been there, is but they're on the move. Like Mul- Mulkin's Tangle, they were way, 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 way south, right? Mm. It was hot waters, like warm waters down there. Right. The Tangle didn't want to move to like colder areas. I think, I think they describe it being like going from warm to cold to warm back to cold again or something. You know, like mm. there's, they've been traveling so far and for so long that I don't think they were in that area ever. Okay. I mean, maybe the occasional tangle because they were there, but they were right. legendary. But they were just chilling in other occupied areas, and now things are happening. The memories are getting dredged up again, that they're moving to the areas, in, the, in somewhat of the areas that they remember nesting before. So I think it's a culmination of... Not really a culmination. I think it is because of those memories getting dredged up that they're going to this area. But because they're so old and things are kind of awakening in their minds and their leaders' minds, they need to look for more food so they're more active as well. And the slavers definitely are an easy target to go after, so they're much more active in the inside channel. That's fair. Inside passage. Yeah, no, it's definitely something interesting to think about. As well as the fact that when Althea was on a live ship, she didn't see them up close. And we know that live ships kind of freak out serpents, right? Like they smell weird or something to the serpents. Yeah, I I don't even think that they freak them out. I think the live ships are freaked out by the serpents. Right. I think the serpents, from what I remember, smell vivacia or something and be like oh this one should be awake but isn't responding kind of thing they're very Mm. curious about them because it's like nothing they've ever remembered before right so i I think it's more like what is this so Mm. maybe they stayed away you know in the past because it was like let's just avoid anything odd yeah and just (laughs) be content with what's going on but um 
with them being more active, I think that prods them to investigate closer, especially with Vivacia being a slaver when they encounter True. True. later. Well, anyway, we are now in a life or death situation where there is a giant serpent playing with the lives of the crew. Yes, and that serpent does manage to snatch somebody off the deck. And it was one of the hunters that we find out later. So Brashen is kind of... Althea hears Brashen ringing out, his voice ringing out desperate. Can we not put some hunters on the stern to keep him off our rudder? If he takes that out and the captain's like, do it. They're, they're kind of in life and death, like you said. They just want to get out of the area, sail away as fast as possible. They want to protect as much as possible of their ship so they can still make it home safely. But there is sudden lurching from the ship. And then there's like a, a cessation of movement for a while because the serpent did grab somebody from the deck. But Althea is certain that the serpent will be back. So it's kind of <laughs> kind of just chilling right now, but everyone's still terrified. Right. They're still on edge. And I can't imagine what it'd be like to be on the state of life or death for multiple days where yeah. there is actually a giant monster that is looking to snatch you off of the deck if you are unlucky enough to be close enough to the railing when they are there. Yeah. And Althea right now is in the rigging on a lookout for the serpents. Right. And noticeably, she says that she's frustrated that she can't see what's going on in the deck below her. However, that's not really her job right now. She doesn't need to think about what's going on. She needs to keep her eyes on the water so that she can warn people if it's coming back. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how cold it is and... Her eyes were weary from peering into the darkness, her hands no more than icy claws. The wind snatched the warmth from her body, but she reminded herself. It also filled the sails and pushed the ship on. Soon they would be out of these serpent-infested waters. Soon. So night is deepening around the ship. Althea is moving swiftly and often, a small spider in a web of wet rigging, trying to keep some warmth in her body as she maintained her futile watch. Eventually the replacement comes, and she kind of scampers down, and hits the deck cat lightly, and stood a moment kneading her stiff hands. She was given a measure of hot, uh, of measure of rum, thinned with hot water, and to try to warm, you know, the people who got changed up a little bit. And she notices a group of hunters on the deck, laughing and cursing as they put a salt meat and fifty fathoms of line together, like a little bait kind of thing for the serpent because the person who got snatched off was a hunter and they want revenge. Right. And it talks, she talks about how she could right now go to the deck and, or go under the deck and get some sort of sleep. It would obviously not be super sound sleep, but she could at least rest and warm up. But she decides that she would rather be of help on the deck preparing for the next attack because that just feels like a better thing to do at this moment. So she's kind of sitting. Everyone is has an air of waiting for him. The hunters are cursing the serpent and being a little bit, I don't know, they're, they're a little bit on edge because it's a role reversal from what they're used to. They're used to being the apex predator and now somebody came and, and hunted them. So they know that the serpent will be back so they can have their, their try at him again or at it again. Right. Althea talks about how while it is a new concept for the hunters to be attacked at sea like this and to die, it isn't new for sailors. Like 
all sailors know inherently deep down that someday the sea will claim you back and it doesn't, you never know how long you have. And so the sailors are kind of handling this whole situation a little bit better, but right now, especially after a, a hunter has been taken from the group, the group of hunters is kind of losing it. <laughs> and she says that uh, those who could not sleep haunted the rails, not trusting to the lookouts who stared from the mass above into the blackness. So there's a lot of people on deck just kind of like who can't sleep, just staring, trying to save the whole ship and themselves from any of this. And Althea was one of those. As you mentioned, she didn't go below decks and try to sleep. She was leaning out when she felt Rashin take a place beside her. Without even turning, she knew it was him. Perhaps she was that familiar with how he moved, or perhaps without realizing it, she had caught some trace of his scent on the air. We are going to be all right, he said reassuringly to the knight. Of course we are, she replied without conviction. And despite the greater danger they all faced, she was still acutely aware of her personal discomfort around Brashen. She would have given a great deal to be able to recall dispassionately all they had said and done that night. She did not know what to blame it on, the drugged beer, the blow to the head, or the sindin, but she was not entirely sure she recalled things as they had happened. She could not, for the life of her, recall what had possessed her to kiss him. Maybe, she reflected bleakly, it was because she did not want to recall that those things had happened at all. So again, she's still very, I don't know, she's in her head about everything. And she has been this whole trip. Right. We know that from the last time we saw her, this isn't her normal thing to do. She doesn't really like getting with somebody who she has a close-ish relationship to. It feels too personal. And now she's dealing with that sense of like, oh no, things are going to be different. I can't believe this happened. And clearly she enjoyed what happened. She does kind of remember it fondly, though she wishes she didn't because that makes it more confusing to her what it is that's happening between the two of them. Yeah. And Sindin, as we know, lowers your inhibitions and she's just putting back her emotional walls up again. Right. Just building them strong and being like, dispassionately, I don't know why I did what I did. Right. Although it's pretty clear that she is... In at least in some way interested in Brashen. And I think this is just her trying to rationalize like, oh no, I slept with this guy that everybody wanted me to get with. And oh no, like, I can't believe I did that. And I feel, I do feel for her. I think it's, it would be super awkward. I don't know. Now you have to go back to pretending to be a boy and pretend like. Brashen's not good at that stuff. Yeah. And pretend like you, you have to go back to when you didn't know that you liked what Brashen could do. And like, <laughs> and now you're thinking about it like, oh no, actually I don't like Brashen. La 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 la. And Brashen is trying to, as I said, he's not very good at it. He's trying to be a little bit more familiar with her saying, you know, are you all right? And making jokes like when we get to, back to Candletown, all this is going to seem like a bad dream. We'll drink and laugh about it. And she's just being very very formal, courteous, and neutral, and not really engaging in his responses. And Brashen is about to like say, like, hey, Althea. And just then the serpent comes out and interrupts him. Yeah, it's it's super awkward because you can tell Brashen is kind of like, oh man, yeah, I'm really into Althea, and like things are gonna change now, and we're gonna be super close and this is great. And Althea's kind of just like, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I guess this servant has really good timing because it saves Althea from the awkward conversation that's about to happen. 
and instead puts them all in fear of their life. <laughs> so the serpent is back. The hunters are screaming, feed it to him, feed it to him. Their little bait that they created. But the ship is also screaming out because a terrible creaking of wood accustomed to being supported by water and now pushed up out of it. The flexibility of the ship that made it possible for the reaper to withstand the pounding of the sea told against her now. Althea could almost feel the pain of planks as fore to aft the whole structure twisted and racked. The rigging groaned and the canvas swung. She found herself crouched on the railing rather than clinging to it, gripping it with both hands. She looked up the slanting deck. So it is pushed very close to <laughs> horizontal in the water. Right. And a man above her roared in sudden helpless fury. He had lost his grip and was sliding down. He wouldn't strike her. If she just stayed where she was, she'd be safe. He'd hit the railing and probably go over, but she'd be safe if she just stayed as she was. Instead, she found herself letting go with one hand and reaching for him. And they kind of barely hang on, clutching at each other. And below her, the water seethed. But there was a concerted effort and yell to haul that bait over. The serpent grabs it and the ship starts to right itself. It's really interesting because I think this speaks to Althea's character a lot. She could have let that man die and probably be fed to the serpent and get them a little bit more time of peace. And instead, she risks her own life to try to save the, the person from going over. And this isn't even like Brashen, who she cares about and knows outside of this. This is just another sailor that's unnamed at this point. And I think that's really impressive that Althea, knowing what is at stake, like her life is at stake and she decides I'm going to do what's right anyway. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's really impressive. I think that's yeah. amazing. And it like really speaks to her character of doing what's right, even though if the roles were reversed, the person probably wouldn't do the same for her. Right. So I don't know. I, it makes me very proud of her and feels very effort. even if I was very hard on him. <laughs> In the beginning, it still feels like a very effort move. So doing what's right, even if it's hard. Mm -hmm. So the bait was grabbed by the serpent and the line is snaking over as if they had dropped an anchor because the serpent was taking it down. Brashen is yelling, snub it off, like cut that rope, but the rope is going out. It reaches to the end. There's a shudder as the hook is set into the serpent and then the cleat that it was tied to just snaps off and takes out some railing as it all goes under. So obviously, yes, the serpent is incredibly strong. Duh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's big enough and strong enough to push a ship out of the water. Like, yes. probably strong enough to handle some rope. But that was able to set the hook into it. They have a little bit of chain just like a uh, like a fishing um, fishing line, there's a heavier test line, a chain first, so the serpent can't chew through that, uh, and then rope after that. I think what's really interesting about this is spoiler alert, but the serpent ends up dying, so it makes me wonder what about the hook or chain killed it. I think it. I think it's the bait itself. I think they poison it a mm. bit. I guess we never find that out, right? No, we never do. They also like throw spears and, and have arrows in it too. Right. So I think it's just culmination of everything. Right. But it is really interesting because like as far as we're aware, it just eats some 
meat and gets a chain clogged in its throat and then dies. Um, the hook could be in its throat. True. Could be bleeding out or suffocating in some way. True. We're not sure. But either way, something happens and it is fatal. But they don't know that yet. Um, they're on this deck. And thankfully, because the ship pulls the other way with the bait and the rope, Althea and the person she saved are able to get back on deck and not fall into the water. Right. There are some barrels uh, tied to it, but everything has gone under. And people are like, well, it can't stay under for forever. Those barrels are tied to it. It's empty. And Althea's thinking like, hmm, I don't think those barrels are going to stop it from just diving straight down and yeah. not coming back up. <laughs> what could they really know of what a serpent could or could not do? Which is true. Like, yeah. <laughs> they serpents are really unknown. As common as they are becoming, it's still a very unknown thing to people. It's not... Clearly, there haven't been stories of people who are serpent hunters yet. So people don't really know what the serpents are capable of. Right. And so the mate is yelling, like, quit your gawking. Like, while it's down, while it's away, let's get out of here. While she's down. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Althea says, so now it's a she, Althea muttered. <laughs> well, the mate doesn't yell she. Those are two different hunters. One hunter says, uh, he can't stay under forever, not with those barrels tied to that hook and chain. And then there is another one that says, there, see them? They just bobbed up. Look at them go. And she's down again. So now it's a she, Althea muttered to herself. And the mate's like, all right, while the damn thing is busy, let's just get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that part really funny of like, a oh, so now it's a she. <laughs> <laughs> and the hunters are kind of angry. They're like, you're not going to run it down and, and kill it. You don't want to be the first ship to bring a serpent's head and hide back to port. A man could drink for a year on even the telling of such a story. The mate replies, I want to live to get on port. Let's get some canvas on. And the hunters ask the captain, who is silent for a time. His whole body was tense with hatred, and Althea guessed that he longed to pursue it with the same mindless tenacity as a hound on a scent. She stood still and silent, scarcely breathing, as she thought to herself, no, 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 no. Just as the hunters started to talk cheerfully amongst themselves about harpoons and boats and partners, the captain shook himself as if awakening from a dream. No, he said quietly, regretfully, and then, no, more firmly and loudly. It would be a stupid risk. We've got a full hold of cargo to deliver. We won't risk it. So, they decide to just let it go like as it's gone we might have fought it off let's just get out let's live <laughs> live to another day you know let's just get going for now let's get out of here let it drag those kegs to the bottom with it for all i care so it says that wad of sea bear meat hooked in its gorge will kill it most like so that's the that's where i kind of got like yeah it's probably the meat and the hook that's hooked in its throat somewhere that ends up killing it right i get yeah that's fair but the captain does say if it comes back then we'll fight it with all our might but we're not doing it unless that happens right and althea's surprised because she expects people to jump to the orders and do what they're told with excitement and instead everybody kind of reluctantly goes and it's almost like everybody's disappointed that they're not hunting this. They want to kill the thing that endangered them. Right. And they want to be legendary. And it's so weird. Like Althea's like, are you kidding me? We need to live. That's way more important. And again, I think this is like a little bit of Efren peeking through. 
because as we know, Efren was a very careful captain and right. didn't want to take on more danger than necessary. And obviously Althea shares that sentiment. <laughs> Beside the ship, the serpent suddenly rose like a log turned on end by a whirlpool. The creature shot up, shaking its head wildly, its jaws gaping wide as it sought to dislodge the hook. It shakes its head and small globs, gobs of bloody mucus flew wildly from its maw. Tiny flecks of stinging slime pattered against the canvas. One struck Althea's cheek and burned. She cried out wordlessly and wiped it away with the sleeve. A terrifying numbness spread out from the burn. Other cries from other sailors let her know she was not the only one hit. And everyone's like, would, she's like, would the stuff kill her? And they don't know. that The hunters, of course, are very happy that it resurfaced. So they, are, they see the chain rattling against its teeth and the kegs bobbed on the water nearby. Arrows are shooting out. Harpoons were flung. Uh, the serpent is trumpeting in agony as it falls back into the water. It was a shrill sound, more akin to a scream of, scream of a woman than the roar of a bull. It dived again, for the kegs vanished like popping bubbles. Above Althea, a man cried out more loudly, a loose, wordless sound, and he, his body falls. Althea catches the sleeve of his shirt, but the sleeve tears free, and she can see that the rotted cloth was from the serpent's slime. It had eaten through the heavy cotton fabric, and she wondered what that was doing to her face, and then thinks, oh no, it's going to eat through our canvas as well. Other cries confirm that, and there are small rips that are appearing in the canvas as the wind pressed on the sail. The captain was watching and kind of measuring the speed of the ship, managing to hold against how long it would take to drag up the spare sails to set them. So his plan seemed to be to get as far away as he could from the serpent's ground before he paused to replace the canvas. Althea agrees with that. So it's kind of a teetering edge of are we going to rip our full canvas and be dead in the water and then have to get the sails up or can I push this a little bit to get far away and then pause so that slime is obviously very dangerous it uh <laughs> knocks that person senseless basically he falls right. to the deck and is like non-responsive Althea talks about how they get the person up and his hands are completely burnt and there is liquid oozing from his nose yeah, and eyes maybe. It's just burning through them. Yeah. And his mouth and nose both leak fluid. Althea did not think he was completely aware anymore. So probably he inhaled some of it. Ugh, I don't know. I feel really bad. It is. Yeah. Do we know, does Althea get a scar on her cheek? Have I don't remember. About it? I don't remember. But yeah, either way, this is nasty stuff <laughs> and not great. So the serpent does come back. The bastard's coming right after us, someone yelled, and the captain bellowed for the hunters to go aft and be ready to drive it off with arrows and harpoons. Althea, on her perch, catches one clear glimpse of the creature bearing down on them. Its mouth still gaped wide, the chain dangling from the corner. Somehow it had severed the heavy hemp line that had attached the barrels to it. The arrows and harpoons stood out from its throat. Its immense eyes caught a bit of the first feeble light of dawn and it reflected it as red anger. Never before had Althea seen an emotion shine so fiercely in an animal's countenance. Taller and taller it reared up from the water, impossibly tall, much too long to be something alive. It struck the ship with every bit of force it could muster. The immense head landed on the afterdeck with a solid smack like a giant hand upon a table. 
The bow of the ship leaped up in response, and Althea was nearly thrown clear of the rigging. She clutched there, voicing her terror in a yell that more than one echoed. There's frantic twanging of arrows and, you know, thrusting spears into the creature over and over, but their actions were unneeded. It had been dying even as it charged up on them. It lay lifeless on the deck, wide eyes staring, maw dribbling a milky fluid that smoked where it fell on the wooden deck. Gradually, the weight of its immense body drew its head back and down to vanish back into the dark waters from whence it had sprung. Half of the after rail went with it. It left a trough of scarred wood smoking in its wake. Hoarsely, the captain ordered the decks doused with seawater. That wasn't just an animal, a voice she recognized as Brashen said. There was both awe and fear in his voice. It wanted revenge before it died, and it damn near got it. Let's get ourselves out of here, the mate suggested. And everyone kind of springs to, to getting out of there after that. Right. So they survive. They survive, but they kind of recognize that, yeah, it's not just a dumb animal. But it's, right. it is life and death. That it was one serpent that they barely managed to kill and still ruined one canvas. A few people did die. And it destroyed, you know, part of their ship. But also this sense of revenge in the way that it died. Like, that isn't very animalistic. I don't, I guess I don't know much about animal killing in general, but I I don't think. Recognizing you are going to die and not just retreating to die is recognizing you're going to die. And then like, I want revenge before I do. And recognizing who it was that almost killed you no being able to put the pieces together of oh the meat they threw overboard that's the thing that killed me and those people are the reason i'm dying i'm gonna kill them first that's pretty intelligent for an animal (laughs) although dragons are this weird animal not animal thing right we we're not sure i don't know where to place them because i guess technically night eyes has really in-depth thoughts and feelings. Yes, but he is also changed by close contact with a human. And I would say, I guess, a lot of his understanding is from what wolves would do intrinsically. He, like, can't understand... He's still... Even being explained human concepts, he doesn't necessarily understand them. And I don't get the vibe from dragons that they can't understand human concepts. It's just that they don't like them. (laughs) Right, yeah. They're just, like, creatures beneath them. yeah. I don't know. Very odd. Not sure what's what to think of that. But we do have the death of the serpent and the aftermath of this thing is actually really, really scary. Like it where it is lying dead, (laughs) burned scorch marks into the wood like it's still smoking when the body slides down. Right. And. So that, like, I guess you couldn't really touch a serpent then without being hurt. I mean, you probably could, but they remember they have, like, the poison that they can bring out. And also, like, it was the blood, basically, that was burning the canvas and everything because it was bleeding heavily. Well, was it blood or was that spraying of the toxins? I think it's it's probably a little bit of both because shaking the rough is, like, kind of a what's described underwater. Right. But uh, it was specifically said that there was gobs of blood, too. Oh. I think it was like blood and slime or something like that. Let me let me look at this again. Okay. Well, while you do that, there is mention that when the serpent is laying dead, 
milky white substance comes out of its maw and leaves like it burns the wood. Right. And that made me think about how the rain wild river runs milky white and burns regular wood and how when people touch it, it's super hot, but also numbing because it's so painful, Mm -hmm. which is what happened when some of it got on Althea. And so now I'm very curious as to what it is that this quote unquote poison of the serpents is and how that relates to the Rainwild River. It's something kind of similar to silver, silver a little bit. Also, it's a uh, um, gobs of bloody mucus ah. wildly from its maw. So I don't think it's the poison directly. I think it's the the mucus plus the blood in there too. Fair. I mean, it's also kind of that the scalding reminds me of the breath weapon that the dragons do have, right? Right. At least the stone dragons that we've seen. And we do see other dragons, like live ones, use it too. But it basically kind of disintegrates or melts people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like acid, basically. So, yeah. I don't know. It's um interesting question. I think, I don't think the Rainwild River is the same thing. It might be slightly related, but I well, I tend more towards this is, yes, there is silver in the river. Right. And that mm-hmm. is dangerous to things. Doesn't necessarily burn everything, but it can kill mm-hmm. humans. Silver does burn because whenever Fitz touched it or um, Verity that's, touched it, it burned hot. Right. But that's that's described as our brains are interpreting that because you're feeling so much more like it's a different okay. thing. I don't know if we get a point of view of somebody who is not skilled touching silver. So it might, it still might burn, but for at least the far seers, they are not as susceptible to the dangers of silver as is always said. Although, yeah, but I will say, but I I, I was going to, I was just going to continue. I I think it's more of the natural like sulfur and like volcano kind of thing. I mean, yes, that, that also cannot like dissolve and eat through wood very fast. So I think it's a combination, but. I was going to say that Verity touching the silver with his hands does make his hand come out looking skeleton like like the flesh has been eaten away, <laughs> I, at least in my brain picture of it. Yeah, there was a description of like dipping your hands in lava and your skin is replaced basically yeah. by the by the stone or like the lava. And that's what silver is. So, yeah, it, it could definitely hurt, but it's not like. He cries out in pain from it, right? I'm pretty sure he did. (laughs) Really? I think he just like dips it in there and like he's like struggling to not put his whole body in. Oh, okay. I don't know. So has to pull him back. I thought it was super painful. I mean, I I think the brain interprets it as some sort of pain. Right. But I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know either. Either way just a thought I had that the milky white substance that burns everything made me think of the milky white water of yeah. the rain wilds. And That's then fair. also similarity to silver or, you know, similarity. Yeah. I, I guess silver doesn't continually eat away something. I don't know. I just, right. We don't know enough. Yeah, We don't know enough. I don't know. Either way it's poisonous and the creature is now <laughs> dead and they are, 
tangentially safe <laughs> at, at the moment from that particular serpent. Yes, and still heading on their way back. I have a little bit of an adventure there. And we check in with Vivacia and Wintro, who the last we talked about, Wintro was like, something has to give. I have to make some sort of decision. And Vivacia is like, be careful in Jamalia. I have a premonition. Right. And now they have been docked in Jamalia in the slave trading ward for yep. four days. So this is at least five days after we've last seen them. And it's the middle of the night when Wintro goes up to Vivacia. And he says, I'm going. I wanted to say goodbye. She heard and felt his words, but they made no sense to her. He could not mean what the words seemed to say. Panicky, she reached for him to grope inside him for understanding, but somehow he held that back from her, separate. And he described like, yeah, you know I love you. More important, perhaps, you know I like you. I think we would have been friends, but I don't know. And then Vivacia's panicky, trying to trying to convince him a little bit, saying like, no, no, you're wrong. She says it quietly, because even now she couldn't betray him. But she says, Wintro, yes, in any form we would be friends, though it cuts me to the quick when you say, seem to say that I am not a real person. But what is between us right now? Ship and man, oh, that could never be with any other. Do not deceive yourself that it could. Don't salve your conscience that if you leave me, I can simply start chatting with Mild or share my opinions with Gantry. They're good men, but they are not you. I need you, Wintro. Wintro? Wintro? She had twisted about to watch him, but he stood just out of her eyeshot. When he stepped up to her, he was stripped to his underwear. He had a very small bundle, something wadded up inside an oilskin and tied tight. Probably his priest's robe, she thought angrily to herself. You're right, he said quietly. That's what I'm taking and nothing else. The only thing of mine I ever brought aboard with me. So, Wintro is like, that. that's his decision. He's like, I can't stand it anymore. I need to be myself. And to him... His self is who he was secure in for the past, you know, three years right. as a priest. And so he's here to say goodbye to Vivacia and be like, hey, you're a great ship. I like you, you know, I even love you, but peace. <laughs> yeah. I, I What I think is really interesting is that in this moment, he is admitting that he loves and likes, self, uh, likes Vivacia. Right. That there is a relationship between the two of them and this weird like ship ship's boy like vibe they have going on and that he is acknowledging the bond that they have. And this I think is the most or the closest we've seen Vivacia get to Paragon and that she almost becomes childlike in this sense of trying to hold on to Wintro of I can't sail with anybody else. This isn't, you can't abandon me. And she's freaking out because she's going to be abandoned. Trying to rationally argue with Wintro too. Like, Hey, just, just lull them into false security. Wait till we're close to the marrows and do it. Like then you can go to your monastery. And Wintro's like, no, if I don't do it now, I won't do it ever. Right. I have to leave before Kyle changes me too much. Right. And I think this is really interesting because from Wintro's point of view, he feels like it's now or never, even though it's not. <laughs> Vivacia's kind of right in that what's he going to do when he gets here? He doesn't know anybody here. There's no 
I guess there is a monastery here, but he's never been to this monastery. He doesn't have contacts here. He's just trying to get out and he could wait. He could lull them into thinking. And he's like, no, they'll change me if I do that. And that kind of feels like a cop out because if you are who you are, you should be able to withstand that. Like, Though, I mean, we have seen the change yeah, Winter has gone through. He has been struggling with himself for the whole voyage, even though he kind of accepted a little bit since the first stage of like, I, I'm here, I might as well do the work. Right. He's still struggled with, they're changing me into a sailor and I can't be a priest then. Right. And so. I think it's, I think it's really interesting, this conundrum of Wintrose, because he seems to think that it's priest or bust. Like if he can't be a priest, he can't be anything. And I find that concept so odd because right. it seems to me from what little understanding I have of Saw and Saw's religion that Saw has put people in the places that they need to be to become the people they should be. Right. And so why wouldn't he be like, oh, maybe Saw didn't ever plan for me to be a priest. He just wanted me to have a deeper connection with him. Instead of saying, I have to be a priest. That's the only way. And there's nothing in Saw about this. It just, I don't know. It just feels very odd that he's so stuck on the idea that he has to be a priest and that there's no, like, and I wonder a little bit if this stems from an idea of like, sailors aren't these, I don't know, little minded people that he had originally put them in the box to be. And that brings him discomfort. And he would prefer the safety of a monastery where he can make those judgments about people from a distance and he doesn't have to live with them in their day to day and actually struggle the way they do. He can kind of just continue to be righteous. Yeah, possibly. I don't know. And that's kind of a harsh reading of Wintro because like, I think Wintro is one of the better characters. I think he is very compassionate in general, but I think part of that stems from him thinking he is better than other people. Oh, and definitely. We've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And I think being in this role proves that he isn't better than anyone else. And that actually it's really hard to be super devote to Saw all of the time in real life. And I guess at like 14, that's a hard reality to cope with. And it would just be easier to run away and go back to the easier life of the monastery. Right. And poor Vivacia. I think the big struggle here is that Vivacia can tell that he would be a good sailor and that he does kind of like this and that eventually he will grow into this role and this lifestyle. But she can't understand why he can't see that. And I, I think the reason he's leaving is because he can. Yeah. Yeah. He just doesn't want to take that path. Right. He doesn't, he thinks it's, you know, hundred percent this or that. He can't blend yeah. the two because he's compromising too much. We've talked about that and he's right. talked about it in his monologues. He's compromised on his morals. He wonders if he's making too many concessions for yeah. things because some of what he's doing, you know, laughing at jests, right. making fun of people, goes against his precepts as a in the, in the monastery. But no, I definitely think Kyle being his captain is the negative in this. I think if it was Efren, even or Althea, if it I was feel- Gantry as yeah. the captain without Torg and Kyle, I think he would have stayed. Yeah, I think he could have learned to live. It's just Kyle is so evil (laughs) he's like the depth of like what humans should not be 
And like, I guess that's not fair because Kyle isn't quite as bad as Kenneth, but like in the sense of how Kyle is treating Wintrow and how Kyle is making literally, literally every situation worse and not helping his son actively splitting up his son from the crew and actively trying to get the crew to despise him for whatever reason. It's just not great. Like if he didn't have that, maybe he wouldn't see so much of a this or that sort of situation. It would be like, oh, I can incorporate both into my life. And poor Vivacia. I I think part of it is like she doesn't want to be alone and she's a child and she has to have somebody of their blood. That's her blood connection. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. This is her first voyage awakened. She's three months old or something. (laughs) Yeah. I feel really bad for her because I think she's trying to be adult about it and trying to be like, okay, well, rationally, this is just a bad decision, but it's kind of being overpowered by that childlike sense of panic mm-hmm. when, you know, parents going away. And Wintrow starts climbing down the anchor and she's like, you must not go. There are serpents in the harbor. They may, you've never lied to me. He rebuked her quietly. Don't do it now to keep me by you. So she was even reaching like, I need to convince him no matter what. And he climbs down into the cold water and starts swimming away. Well, the problem is she's not lying. No, there are serpents. Yeah. And the fact that Wintrow would not trust her and be like, oh, you're just trying to keep me here. I mean, sure. Part of it is that reason. But like there are serpents in these waters and it is dangerous. It's not made up. And I don't know. I think it's a little silly and naive of him to be like, oh, the only reason she said that is to scare me into saying. True. So soundless screams, waterless screams, Wintrow, Wintrow, Wintrow. She kept still, and not just because she feared her cries would rouse the serpents. A terrible loyalty to him and to herself silenced her. He could not mean it. He could not do it. He was a vestrit, and she was his family ship. He could not leave her, not for long. He'd get ashore and go up into the dark town. He'd stay there an hour, a day, a week. Men did such things. They went ashore, but they always came back. Of his own will, he'd come back to her and acknowledge that she was his destiny. She hugged herself tightly and clenched her teeth shut. She would not cry out. She could wait until he saw for himself and came back on his own. She'd trust that she truly knew his heart. And this is what really drives that wedge in there for Kenneth to kind of get in there and and be the the truly trustworthy one to depend on, right? Right. So Wintrow does get back to the ship eventually. They buy him back as a slave, and he's there. He's severely punished, obviously. But that connection never really fully establishes until he can accept that he's part of the crew, and that comes much later. Right. I think I think Vivacia is right in that if she would have let him go and what happens next of him becoming a slave to his own family ship... If that never happened, if Wintrow was just allowed to be free to go, I think Wintrow would come back. I think he would, there's a potential that he'd get to the monastery and realize how much he had changed and kind of long for that connection again with Vivacia. I think there's something about the bond that doesn't really go away. And so there is a possibility that Vivacia is right and that he would have come to her of his own volition. And I think that would have made them a really strong bond because then it would be Wintrow's choice and not something he was forced into. And but once again, he'll be forced. He is forced. And that just, again, 
makes it hard to be part of the ship. And I hate that for him. I hate that for Vivacia. I think it's not fair that Vivacia has to live with this. But I also think it's weird because whenever Althea does eventually come back, Vivacia doesn't accept her, right? The whole thing is Althea doesn't stay with Vivacia. She ends up going to Paragon because Vivacia doesn't accept Althea. Something. As, I, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. We'll so, have to read that, I guess. So I just find it really interesting that it seems to be there's like one person she can connect to and she's chosen Wintrow, even though Wintrow does not want any part of that instead of Althea, who does, <laughs> which is like sad for everybody involved. But I guess Wintrow does kind of grow into it. I don't know. It's hard. Eventually, yeah, very hard. So she's left alone as well, despairing, same as Paragon is left despairing. Their future is here. Mm-hmm. And then we get the last little hint of this chapter of the charm talking to Etta. Well, it's Kenneth's voice talking to Etta. Right. And it's from Etta's point of view. <laughs> yes. From which Etta's point I don't of think view. we get super often. We get little touches here and there. We get more in the later books. Right. But yeah, not, not super often, but uh, this is the first one that we've had for sure. It's nearly dawn. Kenneth's voice was so soft, Etta was scarcely sure she had heard it. Yes, she confirmed very quietly. She lay alongside his back, her body not quite touching his. If he was talking in his sleep, she did not wish to wake him. It was seldom that he fell asleep while she was still in the bed, seldom that she was allowed to share his bedding and pillows and warmth of his lean body for more than an hour or two. He spoke again. Do you know this piece? When I am parted from you, the dawn light touches my face with your hands. I don't know, she replied hesitantly. It sounds like a bit of poem, perhaps. I never had much time for the learning of poetry. You have no need to learn what you already are, he said quietly. He did not try to disguise the fondness in his voice. At his heart, near stood still. She dared not breathe. The poem is called From Kitris to His Mistress. It is older than Jamalia, from the days of the old empire. Again, there was a pause. Ever since I met you, it has made me think of you, especially the part that says, Words are not cupped deeply enough to hold my fondness. I bite my tongue and scowl my love, lest passion make me slave. A pause. Another man's words from another man's lips. I wish they were my own. So she sits there quietly, savoring them, committing those words to memory. In the absence of his breathless whisper, she heard the deep rhythm of his breathing in harmony with the splash and gurgle of the waves against the ship's bow. It was a music that moved through her with the beating of her blood. She drew a breath and summoned all her courage. Sweet as your words are, I do not need them. I have never needed them. Then in silence, let us bide. Lie still beside me until morning turns us out. So before I finish off the the last of this paragraph here, I kind of want to talk like, yeah, his breath is slow and deep and in timing because he is sleeping. Right. This is the charm because at the end of this page, it says the dimness of the cabin's captain, the captain's cabin, a tiny smile curved his wooden features. So we have the charm reciting poetry as to what I, I said before, charming her to Kenneth's side, specifically reciting a poem that speaks of his fondness and his love for her, but puts it in a way of like, my love, I scowl out. Like, uh-huh. I, like let's not talk about this. Right. So setting Kenneth up to the best situation that he can possibly have. Ada is going to remain extremely loyal and in love with Kenneth because she thinks that Kenneth loves her. 
but gives him the excuse to be kind of cruel and mean out loud. Right. I, yeah, I think this is really interesting because I don't necessarily know that Edda loves him at this point in time, but it does feel like a courtship and like, and that there's some sort of feelings there. And she seems to want someone near her. She's sad that she doesn't get to share the warmth of his bed usually, but that's not from like a lovey dovey sense. It kind of feels more like the companionship that she wants and hearing these sweet words, they do make her heart flutter. And she clearly thinks it's very romantic and sweet. However, the way she responds by saying, you know, I don't need your flattery and I never have. I think that goes to show her own walls she's putting up of, I'm not going to let this feeling get to me. I know my position here. I know that I'm not his woman. I just am a woman. (laughs) Yeah. But she does specifically think having lived for so long with so little, speaking kind of of needing just someone right in her Mm -hmm. life, she thinks the words he had spoken to her now would be enough to last her a life. When she closed her eyes, a single tear slid forth from beneath her lashes. So the charm is doing all the work, right? Right. (laughs) Like, like you said, she has been so alone. I'm sure life on shore in Divi Town was incredibly hard and lonely for her being in a bagnio and working there and basically having some people probably, but she's not conventionally attractive or she, like the pick except for Kennet who comes into town. Right. She makes mention to Kennet in one of the first chapters that she doesn't really get business besides him that like typically people don't want her. So she's not, a popular person. Right. So any little words of fondness from somebody who actions showed that he preferred her, but now hearing the words also kind of reinforces that and lets her think like, oh yeah, I don't need him to turn to me and cuddle with me or anything. Joe's words are enough to last my life. Right. And I think it's really interesting because if you think about things from Ada's point of view, So far, after this big, almost death of Kennet, it does kind of seem like he suddenly has feelings. I mean, the time they met before this, she begged him to take her with him and that said that she could be his woman and she'd keep a house for him somewhere. She doesn't care. Just please take her. And he said no. And then he comes back. And when her life is in danger, he rescues her and gives her a place on the ship and takes her away from the place that she was working. And she doesn't have to be there anymore, which was her big fear. And now he's saying such sweet things to her. Like maybe there is a change in her. And I don't think this is something I think before their relationship was more of just a comfort thing for her that his enjoyment of her meant that she could continue to live and it wasn't necessarily a relationship other than that of like an employer and an employee (laughs) basically and now there's a chance for something to blossom because of the work that Kenneth's charm is doing right yeah and kind of ties her loyalty to him yeah which is really sad because it is ultimately manipulation right I mean, the wizard wood charm can't ever have her. (laughs) It's not 
not feasible <laughs> for the wizard wood charm to be able to court Edda himself or right. to ever be with her. And Kenneth's never really going to be the version that the charm is, right? Like he's never going to tell her the sweet nothings for no reason. So it is kind of a betrayal in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So there we have it. Pretty good chapter. Lots of stuff happening. A lot of, you know, notes of some hope with uh, Brashen and Althea surviving with Etta feeling justified in her position. Right. But all of it is, all of the other parts and including those are kind of tinged with a, a sadness or a despair of some sort, either from the reader's perspective or from the characters themselves like Vivacia and Paragon. Right. Definitely a lot of changing situations happening. Yes, definitely. Definitely. And the seed for uh, Vivacia going over to Kennet is kind of coming to fruition. When you first read these, did you think that Vivacia was going to end up the one that Kennet gets? I think around this time in the book, I had a hunch that it would be her because... Rereading it seems heavy handed, right? Yeah, like it definitely. Seems like, but oh, I, think- I need a live ship. I can't do anything. All these slavers are slow or whatever. There's serpents all around. But like these live ships yeah. are so fast. And then like, oh, I'm Vivacia. I'm the only live ship that's going to be a slaver yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what made me. I think I was like, I wonder if it's going to be Vivacia just because. Like, why would we be following her around otherwise? Right. Like she right. wouldn't be important if she wasn't the one. Um, and I don't think it was going to be Paragon. I honestly didn't see Paragon having a relationship with Kenneth at all, but I do think I kind of guessed that it would be Vivacia that Kenneth gets if right. he was able to capture one because of the fact that she's going to be a slaver and they're yeah. going after it. Like, I didn't even think of it from the standpoint of like the slavers are slower, just that like they're chasing slavers. Yeah. Too. They're, they're yeah. yeah. So it was like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Yeah. If you have any thoughts, please let us know. We're at isfitshappy at gmail.com. You can email us directly through that. Or you can message us or comment on any of our posts. It is Fits Happy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And all of those. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening and throwing your thoughts around. We love hearing from you. See you next week. You all know what time it is. Time to get into the listener stuff. You know what? One of these days I'm going to have like a really put together way to go into this section. And you guys are all going to be surprised. In fact, I will probably be surprised. And then it'll stick. three years. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> you never, you know what? Practice makes perfect. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll aim for my, um, the 200th episode goal. <laughs> okay. Okay. By episode 200, I will have a very solid way of transitioning into this. That will happen in 2024. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I have a whole nother year. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Welcome to my favorite section of the podcast where we talk about your guys' thoughts. Um, Thank you to everyone who writes in. And those of you who don't and just think them to yourself, we love that for you. Um, But we cannot talk about your opinions then. So if you'd like to have them talked about, please feel free to send it your thoughts. And today we will be talking about some thoughts from Facebook first. The very first 
thing that we're going to talk about is something that Ellen has said to us. We were talking about in the last episode how Wintro brings up magic that the priests do. Not necessarily the priests. Just he doesn't magic specify. he's seen yes, yes. while he was a priest. I guess mm-hmm. I just assumed it was a priest magic. He doesn't specify. He just says that he saw a few things. Like the priests don't disbelieve in magic, right? right? right. He saw a few things happen. So we don't know. Right. <laughs> it could be the priests. <laughs> could like, be the people in the area. Yeah. Either way, there's some magic of creating fire out of nothing. And cleansing a wound. And cleansing wounds. And Ellen says that she's always just assumed that this has been something done from... Hedge magic. Hedge magic. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting thought. And I don't necessarily disagree. I think it's absolutely possible that this is a hedge magic since we don't know anything about hedge magic. Yeah, and Ellen specifically says that it seems closer to like the ordinary person's kind of magic. And it is the one that we know least about. Right. Yeah, so I think Luke specifically was very strong in his thought that it could be skill. Yes. And there's no saying that he's wrong. (laughs) We're not here to accuse Luke of being wrong. Although you love it when I am. Yes, that's true. Um, (laughs) More so I love when I'm right and you're wrong about very niche things. (laughs) But yeah, it is an interesting thought, especially with, uh, I don't know, I... If it is the priest doing it, it is an interesting thought that they blend both hedge and skill right. together in some of their teachings. Or if, you know, just some of the monastery, uh, the priests do that. I don't know. Although, I mean, there is a blending of skill and wit with fits. So right. potentially. It's- and not everybody has the skill as priests either. True. Yeah, it's definitely. I don't, is it a blood thing? Do we think? I guess it'd have to be bloodline, right? It. Yeah, we kind of figured that out, that it was, at least in the six duchies, that it was the mixing of two peoples, the Out-Islanders and the six duchies, that kind of create that predilection for the skill, which is what uh, the narration and Fitz says to us all the time. Right. But then I wonder what gives, like, Wintro the See, ability, like, what in his bloodline? So... Now, now think back here okay, to our tinfoil hat theories on mm-hmm. why that was, those two people. We had decided that two different kinds of elderlings, two different cities or peoples mm-hmm. had lived there. One from like the Mountain Kingdom right. area, right? And one from the, uh, the Out Islanders because as Lovejall was out there, that city. Right. And there's obviously indication that some elderlings lived in the Six Duchies land because of these skill stones. Right. The portal stones there. So we posited that those mixing of the two different kinds created more predilection for the skill. It was, we don't know why. Right. <laughs> it was just right. like kind of our genes. I don't yeah, know. Our, our theory kind of thing that that happened. So it's definitely possible if that is the case and we follow that thought that different peoples lived around that area as well. We know there was a elderling city right by other island that sank. There's probably others around there. We don't know all of them were different peoples or anything like that, but if that is the theory and that holds true, it's definitely possible other populations were over there as well and could mix. And besides, they are living very close to dragon cities in general you know yeah that's fair that could be just be proximity 
That's, yeah. Fair. So, yeah. So, unclear, but it is good to hear another perspective of, oh, maybe this is hedge magic because maybe it is. Who knows? So Or maybe... Another theory, maybe it was just the whites who had something like that. And since they foresaw their own demise and they um, started spreading their genes throughout to create whites in general, maybe mm-hmm. that spread created more. Right. Yeah. There's... Created skill in some sort. I don't know. Or different magic. Yeah. Although I don't, I would feel like then the like whites genes would give more of a magic like Kenneth has of luck. luck Quote, or unquote, foresight luck. or something. Yeah, yeah. Something. I don't know. I don't really believe that one as much, but that was just another thing. Yeah. So So very interesting thoughts. Thank you, Ellen. Also, thank you to listener Stephen, who showed us a really cool illustration that John Howe did for the new hardcover edition that's coming out soon of the Live Ship Trader book. Yeah. Yeah, it is gorgeous if you haven't seen it. John Howe famously uh, did some of the earlier... Uh, Fitz books as well, the description or the um, prints for them, the hardcover copies, or maybe the softcover copies, maybe both. I don't know. He did some art for the covers previously, and he is probably most famous for his work on Lord of the Rings. He did a bunch of illustrations for them and helped and was the kind of the blueprint for the art direction for the original Lord of the Rings trilogy and helped with them. Um, it was John Howe, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Crap. But he is a very uh, well-known fantasy author, or not author, artist. And this work is gorgeous. It, it is, is very beautiful. We'll have so. to post it on some of our pages. Yeah, um, but it is right now, if you want to see it, it is on our Facebook page in a comment of our latest yes. <laughs> of episode 135. So Yeah, so thank you to Stephen for bringing that to our attention. It's definitely a very beautiful piece and it does make me think about how there are a bunch of new editions of these books coming out and part of it makes me wonder, this is like a very off topic, (laughs) just something I'm thinking about in this moment. I wonder if that means that like this series as a whole is kind of becoming more mainstream or like there's going to be like a push Mm. of more people actually reading the book, which in some ways I'm like, great, I would love more people to be part of this group. It's such a great series, but then in other ways... I I know any, anything getting more popular is a good thing. Yeah. There's going to be, you know, bad things that come with that, but you know, the new editions of the books, the, the folio editions, the illustrated editions, Mm -hmm. the, uh, the comic book that came out, you know, all of that stuff is great. Great news. I like seeing more art in general and more fandoms come. So yeah, definitely cool. I'm a little bit of a hipster in that. I like to say that I liked things before they were cool, um, (laughs) which is a toxic trait of mine. (laughs) But no, I think it's always good to grow the fandom and get more opinions and more thoughts in the mix. It's always fun. My fingers are still crossed for continuing the illustrated editions through live ship and the rest of the the series. Yes. We've only seen the, the first three done. So hoping, hoping for other ones to continue. Definitely. Yeah, it's always it's always cool to see people's ideas of what these books look like. The next thing that we have is an email from Jonas. Thank you for writing in, first of all, Jonas. Second of all, it is about mostly about Ronica and the family there, and then a little bit of Wintrow at the end. 
kind of bleeding in through the vestrit talk of the family. <laughs> so first off, uh, this is talking about our latest episode, uh, I believe 135, mm-hmm. where Jonas kind of agrees with a lot of what we said about Ronica and takes it to a little harsher level than right. we went at, just saying she's not as good of a mother and grandmother as she likes to think and is actually very bad because she immediately gives up on Malta saying like, at least Wintro can take over the family. Like Malta's too far gone. So she's not even trying to be nurturing or like guide Malta back on path. She didn't really teach Kefri a lot, just kind of echoing a lot of those same sentiments that, that we discussed through that episode. Yeah. And I do want to say um, this might <laughs> come across as odd, but I kind of like that Hobb wrote this female character as not nurturing. This is nothing against, like, Jonas doesn't say anything about this being a negative, and no, I don't want to make it seem like that. Jonas does say that she is a good person, just yes. not a great mother or grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, like, this is not anything against what Jonas is saying. Um, but I do think it's kind of cool to have a book where we have a mother, a matriarch, a of matriarch. The yeah, yeah. Somebody who is powerful and strong, who isn't nurturing. We get to see a female character be something other than what we think of when we think of a mother in a family. And I think that's really cool to have that in these books. It is frustrating at times. And I definitely am with Jonas and think wishing that she could be a little bit more helpful to her family members and a little less dismissive of people when they don't live up to her expectations. But I do think it's nice to have this representation in female characters. And I do appreciate Hobb for not only writing women a certain way or only writing men a certain way for that matter. We have Wintro, who is not what you would think of when you think of a typical boy, especially somebody in the society he's grown up in. Yeah. And and Jonas does talk about that, saying the whole family really lacks emotional communication skills with the exception of Wintro. Yeah. But everybody else are pretty bad at communicating. Althea keeps to herself. Ronica is bad at communicating in general. Malta is a liar and manipulates people. Kyle is a bigot. Kefria has too low self-esteem and does applaud her for talking to her mother about like what she's going to do in the future and, and things to fix. But there are problems within this family and They're not the same. None of them are like one note. Yeah, it's definitely complex and complicated. And I think Jonas writing in really made me realize that as much as I rag on all these characters and get frustrated about them, I still really appreciate our ability to be able to do that. Yes. And the final comment here from Jonas is... Despite many well-written female characters in this series, I surely miss Patience and Lacey. Strong, honest, good people who aren't nearly as frustrating. (laughs) And that is true. Patience is a great character. I love Lacey even more, if that's possible, because she's just so, she's so funny. Yeah. But it's kind of true. They are very non-problematic, with the exception of just being kind of forgetful-ish. Right. Or like quirky, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the the characters in this series, this is why one, this series is considered one of her best. It's, I think, my second most favorite of the trilogies or, you know, books that she has written in this series. So it's because of the the grayness and the 
varied flaws and the depth of the characters that she writes in such a short time. Yeah. No, it definitely is impressive that, I mean, we're what, like 22 chapters into a book and there is so much we know about these characters and they're so fleshed out and we know so much, even though we're not spending that much time with each individual one. So I don't know. And we didn't watch them grow up. We don't know. It's not the same as we are able to interact with Fitz, but it is similar in that we know a lot about them and can kind of guess at their motivations and see where they're coming from. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Jonas, for writing in. And please don't worry about any length of your emails or anything. Keep the thoughts coming. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) So that's mostly what people have written in. Um, We are about to talk about one final email, which is something that is a little bit more touchy of a subject. It's about Etta and chapter or episode 115 where Etta was um, sexually assaulted. So if you would like to stop listening here. Yeah. So content um, warning for, for any discussion about essay or, or rape or anything like that, or how those topics are handled. Right. That's what we're about to talk about. So if you need to end the podcast here, we love you. Thank you for listening. Um, but we are, that's all we're going to be talking about and then we're going to finish it. So you won't be missing anything except for that conversation. And we understand if you need to not listen to it. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Um, and then if you're staying on, we'll get along. (laughs) We got a really thoughtful message from a listener about, as I said, Etta. Um, And our listener, Naomi, said that um, they really appreciate the way that we are not shying away from talking about these hard topics, which thank you. It is really hard. It was a hard decision to how do you handle this, right? Like this is a real life problem. Um, not that some of the others aren't, but. This this is something that carries a lot of weight in the real world as well. A lot of PTSD, a lot of, a lot of trauma can come along with this for, you know, real events that happened. And they, these books are written in such a realistic way that it is a delicate topic, but we decided not to shy away from it. One, because this is a rereaders podcast. Right. And we know everybody who is, at least the people who are sticking along with this, have are okay with discussing these topics. Right. You know that they're coming. It's not yep. a surprise. And two, this is a dive into the psyche of the characters. And I believe, I'm not an expert um, or too close to these topics in general, but I believe that these uh, events are written in a very... I guess proper way and they're not just thrown in just to be character development, I should say. Right. It does it's not very Game of Thrones and the way that it's done. Right. Um, so yeah, so we so thank you for um liking that we're talking about that, but I think um we just decided that it's important to do. And if we're going going to talk about every other aspect of this book, especially as rereaders, we can't leave out this part, even yeah. if it's hard to talk about. That being said, we'll get into a little bit of what Naomi has written in about. Basically, what Naomi is speaking on is the our discussion about consent. Right. Um, the biggest thing being that 
I believe in episode 115, we talk about how it is a gray area of consent because Etta is a sex worker. There is some level of consent to how she's being treated, but the way in which Kenneth is using her services is not really normal. I guess is the best and, way to phrase it. And the that. situations for the, the women in general in this time period right, and really brings into the question of consent and what they're actually able to do to live. Like, right. Divi Town is not a habitable, <laughs> habitable place for, for a woman. For a woman, you know? Right. And yeah, and it is brought up, like, even if it wasn't Divi Town, it seems in this world, in this time period, there are very few options, especially in this corner of the world, for women to be able to make it on their own. And we don't really know what Etta's background family history is, but whatever it is, it has led her to believing that she can't stay with those people and she is now here right which which leads to her offer of like hey if you buy me right a house like i can be by myself and you can have your own thing like just you're the only person here that cares about me basically right and so that really begs the question of well she's relying on kennett to even survive Mm-hmm. So she's putting up with anything that he does and his complete lack of care for her feelings or anything really begs the question and raises a bunch of red flags about his behavior even before, you know, future things, uh, future events with Althea really raises red flags about Kenneth right. with his complete lack of empathy and kind of begs the question of like, is it fully in her, in Etta's capability to choose a different life or is she here because she has to be which is the case right and in that case she can't really say no because if she does say no then what so she doesn't have that choice so yeah so i think that is a really good point to bring up that although in some way it feels more consent like it feels closer to consent because she quote unquote chose this lifestyle We don't, there's not really a ton of choice going into what to be as a woman. And for all we know, this was it. It was this or die. And that's not really a good enough. (laughs) That's not a good enough solid yes when you're saying yes to things that these people are asking you to do. And so I think that's really important and a really good point to bring up and something that um, I'm glad was brought to our attention to, um, think about it in that way in the future too. And just to keep in mind that while Etta is, you know, saying yes, that yes is very conditional on the fact that if she doesn't, she doesn't have a place to live and there's not really anything else she can do. Mm -hmm. So that does really make it completely different. (laughs) And now I I will speak on another part, like from Kenneth's point of view here. He's coming in with a complete, like I said before, complete lack of empathy, doesn't care about her situation at all. So he's not even thinking about that. Right. Right. Like that doesn't even come to mind. Like, well, she has to say yes to me. He's thinking she has to say yes because she is a sex worker and I'm coming and paying. Right. 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 It's a service I'm paying for. Right. That's what I'm paying to do. So her relying on Kenneth and we see that in this chapter too. her complete devotion and loyalty to taking her out of that situation with her lack of consent in there she's kind of conditioned in this way like oh he actually does care for me with the charms help all that 
Hannah literally could care less. He learns to have feelings for her, right? She's the one that is there the whole time. She helps him out in small ways and can handle him like you mentioned. Right. But they're coming at that, I guess, relationship from completely different angles and situations. And while she might be thinking of his situation a little bit more, he's completely not thinking of hers. No. And yeah, I think it does also bring a new light to how their relationship develops in the future and why she would probably be so standoffish in this last chapter where she's like, sure, he's being nice right now and I am lonely and want that human companionship, but I'm also going to put a wall there because I'm just somebody he's paying for, right? There's that sense of like, this isn't necessarily the relationship she would probably choose if she was free to choose a relationship in a way she wanted. And she but unfortunately she's emotionally dependent yeah, and physically dependent. Yeah. On it's definitely a terrible spot for her to be in. And I feel really, really bad for her because it's not a life that I would wish on anyone. I don't think it's great that this fictional character has to live it, even if she's not real. And yeah. Which leads us, leads us a little bit into a discussion of a hard discussion about the general terms of abuse and things like that. Right. Um, Yeah. And I guess I'll take over from this Okay. (laughs) because it is kind of about something that I said. Um, And again, I want to phrase this as I'm very thankful for this being brought to both of our attention, but especially mine for this reason. Um, And I had made a comment that um, what happens to Althea, Althea by Kenneth later is worse than what Etta goes through. And that's not great wording. <laughs> it's not, a, I shouldn't have used that wording. And in the moment, I didn't really think about it, but having it written out, like clearly not great wording on my point of, um, from my point, it's not a competition. Happening at all is bad. And I don't want to give the impression that some victims deserve more sympathy than others, because right. if you're a victim, you are a victim and that is horrible. And it doesn't matter how bad it was or that somebody has it worse. Somebody's mm-hmm. always going to have it worse, <laughs> but now, that I'll, doesn't mean I'll make a, I'll make a maybe, maybe write in and tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I'll make a statement from Kenneth's point of view mm-hmm. that what from Kenneth's point of view, what he does to Althea is worse than what he does to Etta because from Kenneth's point of view, not the victim's point of view, because right. that's not a competition from Kenneth's point of view. It doesn't matter with Etta. He's paying for a service. And then right. Althea, he's just right evil. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But I, so. Yeah. But I think even in that case, it doesn't really matter. Like we, yeah, it's not a competition. Right. No, it's, it's not. not. And it's yeah. Not. And um, I really think our listeners <laughs> in general, but especially Naomi who wrote in for having grace in this situation because, um, as they mentioned, words are hard and it's hard to talk about any situation perfectly. And I will, I'm sure, make more mistakes in the future, as I'm sure Luke will too. Oh, yeah. Um, but, Maybe that was right there. Yeah. <laughs> but in general, I think it's good to be told when we're making mistakes so that we can do better in the future and try to avoid doing that again. Yeah, for sure. And Yeah, and... I mean, I'm glad that we're not held to perfection standards, but I'm also glad that you felt comfortable enough to write in and tell us that 
it didn't feel right that we said it that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm really appreciative of appreciative of our audience that we have to do that and to know that it's not coming from a place of malice, even though if you're hurting someone, the position that you're taking doesn't really matter, right? Like malice right. intended or not doesn't take away if you hurt somebody with your words. So um, yeah, words are so funny, right? Like sometimes you just don't even think about them and then they are really important. And podcast is basically just word vomit. Anyways, yeah. right? We're just kind of <laughs> just us talking for two hours, <laughs> blathering on about different topics, going into tangents. Yeah. <laughs> right, and yeah. So I, I thank you very much, Naomi, for bringing that to our attention, and we will work on that in the future and be more mindful of the wording that we use, especially with such a heavy topic. And yeah, and to anybody else who was affected, who is still listening, <laughs> um, I apologize, and I hope you know that I am working to try to make changes for the future when we talk about, because unfortunately that won't be the last time we have to talk about consent no, <laughs> or yeah. sexual assault in general. Um, there's still a couple more times I think <laughs> of this at least. So like two or three more chapters, maybe, maybe I can't recall all of them. But. Yeah. Not great. Either way, <laughs> not exciting. <laughs> That we have to talk about it more. Yeah, not but necessarily something yeah. to look forward to. No, <laughs> definitely not. But we do have to talk about it. So thank you, Naomi, for writing in and for giving us more perspective and for being able to let us give other people perspective too for anybody who was not aware as we were and not thinking about it in the way of Edda doesn't really have choices when it comes to, you know, her job profession as a woman. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely some good thoughts from everyone. <laughs> thank you as always to everyone who wrote in and thank you to our little fan group who, um, you guys keep listening and keep enjoying our podcast. We like doing this for you. So thanks so much. Yeah. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>